Welcome to the Matthew Moran Podcast. Here you will find a series of in-depth conversations with the world's best nature photographers, conservationists, designers, editors, writers and publishers. You will get an insight into the lives of creative professionals and industry experts. And it is a chance to hear their stories, personal journeys and how they carve a niche to make a living in a rapidly changing, highly competitive but hugely exciting field. I've had the pleasure of working with many of my guests over the years and have learned so much from spending time with them and having conversations about what it means to be a creative freelancer, sourcing exciting projects, sharing skills through partnerships and not losing sight of your goals and dreams. This podcast is my chance to share these conversations with you. So sit back, relax and enjoy. Part two of my conversation with Joanne MacArthur. So if you've arrived here first and haven't listened to part one, please head right back and check it out. We don't want you to miss out. Here in part two, we go into more detail about Joe's coping strategies after years of witnessing and photographing so much animal suffering. Joe talks candidly about dealing with PTSD, practicing mindfulness, and how humor is an essential antidote to what is otherwise a pretty grim job. She also talks about a new book that she and the We Animals media team are currently working on with previous guest on this podcast, Keith Wilson. This is definitely one to look out for next year as it sounds like it will be the most comprehensive historical photographic document of animal oppression ever produced. I was so excited to get to speak with Jo about her photography and hear her stories from the front line of animal advocacy and it was such a pleasure being in her company. It's been and continues to be a great journey producing these podcasts, but I think we can all be guilty. Photographers, that's us, you know, the content creators, of putting stuff out there with no call to action. So here's my call to action to you. You can help. Please visit weanimals.org forward slash support to support Joe and the team's amazing work putting the invisible animals out there in the limelight. If you can't donate financially, spread the word. It'll take a minute to share or five minutes to leave a review on iTunes. And if you're really inspired, and why wouldn't you be, now is a better time than any to go vegan. The January is just around the corner. Just Google it. There's so much help, advice and support. And most importantly, there's a huge community to help you make those baby steps. As Joe said, now is a great time to be involved in animal advocacy. And to steal the phrase from our mutual friend, Colleen Patrick Goudreau, don't do nothing because you can't do everything. Do something, anything. Here's part two. Enjoy. I wanted to move in to a little bit more about you. Great. We're going to go deep. We're going deep. <laughs> We're going to go deep. Deep. Okay, I'm ready. <laughs> this is like you know, therapy for Joanne MacArthur. <laughs> No. Uh, Are you um, going to therapize me? <laughs> Not Is that a word? <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's do it. So yeah, I, um, you know, I know you get asked this a lot, and you know, Google Joe MacArthur. There's great stuff out there. There's videos, podcasts, and you know about the work that you do and the effect it has on you, um, and you know how you cope with this. Um, actually, first of all, you, yeah, you could I think talk a bit, little bit about that and your experiences and how you approach how you deal with all the traumatic stuff that you see and you, that you know you're going to see when you go into, you know, a fur farm or a broiler chicken 
shed with a million chickens in? You know, how do you just kind of have that out-of-body experience if that's what it is? Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, it is that in a way. And honestly, this is a big conversation with a lot of different answers, and I answer differently depending on my mood. Great. Yeah. yeah. Um, but to your last point about out-of-body experience, I'm there for an incredibly short amount of time, sometimes five minutes. I have gone across the earth to gain access and do a good job for the animals. And so there's no room or time for me to have a crying fit <laughs> and to uh, go through the experience of my own emotions. I'm there to do a good job. So that's how I operate when I'm working. It is upsetting and it's hard, but this is the, the MO when I'm shooting and deal with my emotions later. Uh, in the beginning, I did not have coping tools. And so I um, needed therapy for post-traumatic stress disorder, like many war photographers who are seeing a lot of suffering and violence. Um, you have, sort of have to learn to cope. And you, there are tools out there now ahead of time. You know, you can read books. There's a great book called Aftershock by Patrice Jones. You can equip yourself to cope, and you should, so that you have longevity in your work. Um, war photography, animal advocacy, all sorts of these difficult things. Like it's a revolving door of people coming in and out because it's really hard. So, you know, whatever the crisis is that you're dealing with, uh, you should try and do it for the long term because it's necessary. So look after yourself. So that's one answer. Um, another answer. Uh, oh. Well, I, I was curious about, <laughs> you, mean, you mentioned PTSD, yeah. you know, and, and were you aware at the time that you had it? Did you need help to kind of get it diagnosed, for want of a better word? I realized at one point that I would wake up in the morning with uh, the images haunting me, the, yeah. the individuals who I'd met who I'd you know, not been able to help. And um, I remember distinctly one morning waking up and thinking about pigs in gestation crates. I was like, oh, this is not healthy. Um, and, and so I was able to um, basically, it was around that time that I really started practicing mindfulness and not taking part in my emotions, like observing my emotions, observing my thoughts rather than just participating in whatever dramas they wanted to pull up for me in that particular moment. Um, yeah, I mean... I mean, so put crudely, in, it's the kind of the ultimate display of it's not about you. Sure, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's almost like, you know how people talk about, um, you know, the camera being a tool to tell a story and it's actually not about the camera it's you know it's just it's that that's its function it's like it's the camera but it's also you but then you you have to kind of put yourself and your compassion in a way to one side and like you, you know i think it's really interesting to say it would be no good you going there and crying and because then it would just be about you and mm -hmm. your tears and your emotion and sadness but actually there's a bigger much bigger picture to all of this there is and yet that fact doesn't help people cope emotionally. It does happen to help me, but I'm one of one of many people. We all cope differently. So I often, honestly, want to tell people like it's not about you. It's about the animals. So just buck up, <laughs> just buck up and get out there, you know, and 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 suck it up because other people are suffering way worse than you are. But that doesn't work yeah. for a lot of people, and I get it. Yeah. So people um, have to go on their own journeys also, in, mm -hmm. and they'll arrive at whatever point they do in, in, in a different way and in a different length of time. And uh, yeah, 
and and then what I got to eventually through the PTSD and then two bouts of depression and learning to cope and learning to deal with what I'd seen is just eventually coming to a place where knowing I know that I can just do the best that I can do and there is a huge crisis and a huge emergency for billions of animals that we are causing but if I live in that panic, I'm just gonna, you know, I'm just gonna crumble. And so learning to be okay with doing the best that I can do every day. And I know that I work hard. So just being okay with that. Um, and, you know, humor is essential in the world, <laughs> as we know, and nurturing your joy and having a life outside of the work that we do, whether it's, you know, having a family or whatever a family means to you. Um, can take many forms uh, and uh, also going to a sanctuary and photographing there yeah so is that your kind of your antidote to all the depressing stories you see all these amazing survival stories in animal sanctuaries it's um it has a a double purpose so shooting at a sanctuary uh allows you to you know be peaceful and commune with happy rescued animals but it also impresses upon you again in an even deeper way just how intellectually complex they are and therefore how bad the situation is for all the others. So I do leave a sanctuary feeling refreshed but also determined anew to fight even harder for all the others who don't have this, uh, this luck and this privilege. Um, you mentioned war photography and this year uh, there was a big exhibit of Don McCullen's work oh, at the Tate. Stunning. Yeah. Oh. You saw? Oh. Yeah, <laughs> no words. <laughs> Just moaning. <laughs> wow. I mean, it was enormous and, you know, quite he obviously heavy to, to, to go through all of that. And um, uh, I really loved those really beautiful quotes up on the wall um, about his work and, and how he coped and, and, and his approach. And I, I, there, was, there was a brilliant quote about and, and it shows back in the day when in in the in the 50s and 60s when he was doing this stuff there were still camera geeks out there asking him what gear he used etc and he would turn around and say well you know you could give me any camera and it would look like a Don McCullen image you know there'd be you know perhaps some differences in quality but I, you know I really loved that and he was very much talked about it the camera being the tool to tell the story and going through all those horrors that he witnessed and saw, you know, his antidote was, like, in a way, landscape photography. And so you kind of, at the end, you've got all these nice pictures of peaceful landscapes, um, mainly mm -hmm. from the UK. And I wondered if you had a, <laughs> did you have a, a, a sort of landscape photography, something or something completely different that you do to also deal with this? Yeah, there are several photographers who have gone that way like Joseph Kadelka as well went to landscapes and I think Cartier-Bresson even went to painting and photographing lovely things and um, people assume it's sanctuary for me but uh, I'm still at a point and at a level of energy as a 42 year old where I still have um, uh, I will allocate most of my time for this for this really hard work but finding catharsis in action and in the change that's being created and the people who contact the team and I about about um, 
what changes they're making or how they're feeling based on what we've seen. So yeah, action, continued ongoing action is the catharsis for me. Yeah, it sounds like you're no, nowhere near close to slowing down. <laughs> I'm really energetic. <laughs> That's an understatement. And we'll see. I mean, ask me again in 10 years. Let's sit yeah. down here or 20 years, 30 years. And um, uh, But I mean, I the investigative work is really exhausting and I, I can't and I don't just, you know, do that for weeks on end anymore, sleeping on people's floors and couches and and doing that. But I have a different way of reaching people now. There's uh, more contributors to We Animals Media, but also I'm doing speaking engagements worldwide and I'm mentoring people. And so there are other ways for me to continue doing the best that I can without being knee deep in pig shit. Yeah, and it goes back to the kind of it, it's not about you thing again, because if you if your ultimate goal is to <clears throat> you know do this incredible PR job and campaign for the invisible animals, you can't do it alone. So you have to be a good communicator and learn and educate other people who are hungry um, for knowledge and you know want 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 to be in your presence and learn from you and their and, and learn from your experiences. Then I can see that it's it's great that you still got this energy and this drive, but opening up to well, all the different media that you talked about, speaking is such a great word, such a great platform to inspire people. You certainly did me when I saw you in. In Bristol a year ago um, so whilst you're not slowing down you're learning to be you know a better delegator and, or branch out your uh, work yeah and the team the we animals team is good at that as well their skills are keeping us organized and well paced that is not my skill <laughs> so it's great to work with such fabulous uh, creative intelligent impassioned people yeah. to keep this uh, not not afloat, but like thriving. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I'll I'll be really look forward to seeing where we are in three to five years, and um, you know, make sure that we have good funding coming in and great projects, ever better projects in film, journalism, and photography. I can't wait. Yeah, it would be great, and we definitely have to get you back on for then for sure. Um, I wanted to just go back a little bit because we just sort of touched on, on the books. There were two, I had a question yes. about We Animals and the name behind that, you know, because it's, it's an intriguing name and, you know, how, how do you interpret that? Or how mm -hmm. do you want other people to interpret that? What does it mean? I guess at its most basic, we are all animals. Yeah, and we forget that with the hierarchy that we, uh, that, that is so ingrained, you know, that we forget that we are all animals. And um, and so that is that is the title. I, I remember also there's some play on words there that I was thinking about at the time. Um, we often refer to people in a derogatory way as an animal, you animal, and it was a way of you know turning that back on us. Like we animals, look at what we are doing to the other animals. Um, yeah, it was, a, it was a title that came to me easily when I first had this idea that maybe I will do an animal project. I, I didn't even think of the title, like it was just there, it was 1998, I was like, oh, it's We Animals. <laughs> but titles don't come easily all no, the time. They really and, don't. and like with this third book that I'm doing with uh, Keith Wilson, who you've interviewed, uh, we are really laboring over a title, which we don't have yet. Yeah. And so this book, he and I are co-editing the book. So it's it's my photography, but it's the photography of probably 20 other uh, 
uh, 20 others as well. Oh, awesome. Yeah. That's great. It's a tome of a book inspired by James Noctway's book Inferno, which came out in 1999. So he put together a, a book of decades of uh, unflinching images from Civil War, famine, genocide. It's like, you know, a six pound book. Oh, you just hold it in your wow. arms. It's like you could weight lift with this thing. And it's just <laughs> black with the word Inferno embossed on it, which is the title. And I thought, I want to do that for animals. I want to do an unflinching historical book about what is and what should never again be. And so finally, all these years later, I'm, I'm doing this book uh, of the best animal photojournalism in the world. Wow. Yeah. And again, it's not wildlife focus. It's not pet focus. It's the invisibles. And uh, people aren't going to want this on their coffee table, but it's a historical document. It'd probably be a, a small print run. We'll see. Yeah. But it needs it to be. It costs a lot to make these things. It does. Yeah, it does. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's for a museum. It's for galleries. It's for it's a conversation piece. It's for the media. Uh, we probably won't, like I said, sell a lot of copies, sure. but it's nevertheless uh, an important book to make. Yeah, and again, is it in the the primary focus of this book is you know when you have this idea, like with the other books, you know how do you begin to think about the contents, for example, and the chapters and mm. who, what, you know, what, what photographer is going to have what story or, you know, so-and-so is good at this and, oh yeah, what about, you know, these great images from, from, you know, this farm, etc. How do you go about, yeah. you know, organizing all of that and deciding on your contributors? It's, yeah. it's exciting. Well, that's why I'm here in London as well, is to work with Keith on the beginnings of the editing. So for months now, let me take that back. For years now, <laughs> I've been watching what photographers are doing and who's producing good work in animal advocacy, uh, in the field of animal advocacy and photojournalism, and uh, taking note of them, building relationships with them, and eventually inviting them to contribute work to our book, Animals in the Anthropocene. And um, yeah, and so that's where we're at. We have a couple thousand images okay. that we need to start whittling through. And uh, as and uh, we're identifying uh, deficits in the work, like, you know, foie gras is a horrific industry okay, of yeah. force-feeding geese. And we're like, oh, yeah, that's a, that's a huge thing. A lot of people eat foie gras worldwide, and we don't have those images. So then finding those images and um, foot and mouth disease. I remember when that happened yeah, here sure. and the incredible images that came from that um, of the burning of animals. We're like, oh, yeah, that's really important. That's... So a lot of this is also picture research as well, trying to find the, the, the source of, of all these historical events. And that's where we're at right now. Okay. Mm -hmm. Joe, how on earth do you find time for all of this? It's ridiculous. <laughs> Full of energy. Exactly. <laughs> Very motivated. <laughs> so this is our first publication. Often we start by self-publishing and then we go, you know, build a reputation and go to a publisher. But I'm doing the opposite. Yeah. We'll see how that works. We'll yeah. see if it's a good decision. Uh, I think it's the right decision for what we want to do for this particular project. And is is there also are there also plans for you know exhibitions and talks and that kind of thing? Absolutely. That inevitably, go along with publishing a book. Yeah, and my hope is that the wildlife and conservation community will welcome yeah, a project absolutely. like this. It is definitely outside of the mandate of these kinds of conferences and, and this kind of work, but that needs to change. Yeah. And you and I talked about that, how the conservation world is opening up and, and broadening. And so 
my hope is that the work will be welcomed there, but it'll certainly be welcomed in the photojournalism yeah. world. And, and I think that's yeah. so important, you know, going back to the Wildlife Photographer of the Year, um, that this is, you know, the, the, the biggest kind of holy grail any, any nature, any nature photographer wants to get their work in there. Um, and you have twice, so that's kind of, that's a good sign, isn't it? That you're kind of, you know, creeping in there. They've opened up photojournalism categories and... I love uh, that you're saying I'm creeping yeah. in there, because that's actually how it feels. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> like, yeah. I got in. Yeah, you got in. <laughs> I got this platform, now I can talk about all the things I want to talk yeah, about. Yeah, absolutely, because it's, it's you know, they, they do have a, a, a responsibility to tell these stories and with the platform that they've got, the audience that they've got, it's huge. So I think it's natural that, and a good thing that there are these crossovers and, and that these stories are being told. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly it. And, and as we have said, uh, competitions like this would get left behind if they weren't broadening yes. their scope and having a really honest look at our relationship with the natural world. Yeah. And so I think that's why this horrific image that I have in the competition this year is one of the winners, is because it's an honest. Um, yeah, and maybe you can talk a little bit about that that image, and yes. the story behind it. Yes, because it's it is really gruesome. <laughs> it's really gruesome, and as um, Roz said, one of the the head of the chairman of the jury, chairwoman of the anyway. Uh, Rosamond Kidman Cox said of the image, it is interestingly subtle and gruesome once you take a look and once you see what's really happening there. Uh, so That's right. It's not all out raw kind yeah. of gore. You go in and you're intrigued. Yeah, you're like, oh, look at these handprints in red. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> these little children's signatures with smiley faces signed next to the handprints. And, and what that is is um, the annual rattlesnake roundup in Texas where they round up tens of thousands of, of snakes and they behead them publicly. And then they skin them publicly in a display of uh, festivity and celebration. Shocking. Mm. It is, I, I, like, I felt like an island, honestly, walking around there. And then there's the snake eating contest. And then there's the Miss Rattlesnake pageant. And... It's an unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I mean, this would be a good time to talk about you know this particular experience because you know I've seen you know a number of shots from that shoot and it's that half half the intrigue of these in incredibly powerful and shocking in images is wow how did you get in there you know if you go in there with your you know nice flowy scarf with lots of cameras like as uh, you know people expect she's a she's a liberal she's going to expose us you know she's a, you know you just walk in there buy a ticket and People love to perform in front of the camera. Is that is that what's going on? That's it. Yeah. Yeah. And and with my work, sometimes I'm just buying a ticket to get in, and I'm there with the hundreds of other people taking pictures. It's like that with bullfights, rodeos, circuses, zoos, aquaria, etc. Um, and so I just fit right in, and I stay. Usually by day four, they're like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> "Why is she still here? She's why is she still here? Why she have those big cameras? They're starting to look suspicious, yeah. and she's not even like with a family or kids or anything. Yeah. <laughs> she's just this creep." <laughs> yeah, sure. But, but um, yeah, I mean that was that was the case. And while a lot of my work is done in secret or at night or investigative and uh, laborious in terms of gaining access, not it's not the case with with. Uh, animals and entertainment and at the at the rattlesnake roundup and so it was um so in the killing 
area the snakes are beheaded and then if you want to pay a little extra money you can skin a snake yourself so they they tie the snake up and they had even young children as young as like four years old grabbing the skin and pulling it down off the the still writhing body of a snake and 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 some people were uncomfortable with it and kids were scared and sometimes a kid would cry and a woman even passed out from it and yet they they just sort of laugh and and lovingly encourage people to take part and say no this is great this is a celebration and to amplify that uh, once your hands are bloody from skinning a snake you can put your bloody handprints on a long white wall and sign your name next to it and so that's the winning image of snake skins alongside all of these handprints um i very dramatically entitled the the image the wall of shame (laughs) i'm not sure if i regret that or not honestly um it's such a dramatic title i don't think it needs such a dramatic title and nevertheless that is what it is called uh and it is a wall of shame it's incredible. Yeah. No, I was thinking about what you were talking about with the kids, and you know, as young as four year, years old, and that's shocking. But it's also unsurprising that these traditions continue because if you, you know, if you get kids doing that kind of thing when they're that young, it's like, oh well, it's normal. This is like completely normal exactly. to behead and skin snakes, you know, while they're still alive, and then they grow up, and then they continue those traditions. So that's why. I guess going back to the education part of your mm-hmm. work, it's 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 so important to talk about the other side. Yes, yes, um, and kids. So many kids are naturally empathetic, and they see a problem in mistreatment and cruelty and uh, killing, and yet they are very swiftly taught to ignore that. And and that you know, uh, Melanie Joy is a psychologist who coined the term carnism. Um, it is an ideology, just as, per, you know, for example, vegetarianism, vegetarianism can be an I- ideology. Um, it just happens to be the predominant one. And so it doesn't uh, get given a name. Yeah, so yeah. it doesn't get given a name. Exactly, exactly. And and so this is part of it. This is, you know, part of uh, teaching kids that violence is not only acceptable, but a cause for celebration in the case of the maligned snake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and it's a funny one, isn't it? Because <clears throat> I think if you'd ask... You know any nature photographer out there you know they bite your right hand off to get an image in the wildlife photographer of the year and it so i guess it keeps coming back to you know maybe people will be like oh you know aren't you thrilled that your picture's in in this great competition and there's it must be a diff, very different experience to you than someone winning i guess with a more traditional image of a you know great behavior of a you know cheetah attacking a gazelle or something like that do you have any kind of thrill when you get that email saying, you know, you've won? Or is it you done thinking, great, this is a platform, I'm going to use this, this is we animals, these are stories? Or do you have any kind of, can you access some, hey, I've won something, and pat yourself on the back too? Sure. Yeah, yeah that's great. I can, I can. Um, it's always good to be told that you've done a good job at something. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? even something as raw and, and, and horrendous as, as that. Well, it's... For me, it is about the other side of it. It spells uh, a degree of success for the point that I'm trying to make. And it's like, oh my gosh, okay, I've got this major award. That means people are looking and paying attention and considering and considering enough to include this image amongst the 100. They're like, okay, the jury decided this was important enough and interesting enough to warrant um, this accolade. So really pleased for the platform yeah first and foremost yeah 
congratulations again. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, wow, we've been speaking for yeah nearly an hour and fifteen minutes. It goes. It always goes so quick. <laughs> these podcasts, and you know, you feel like you kind of scratch the surface, but. Um, we can slowly start wrapping it up because, mm-hmm. well, we're going to have some food, which would be nice. And then ever, ever energyless <laughs> Joe is going to go back and carry on doing some work. This yeah. yeah can... I have editing to do tonight and prep for the, <laughs> the book editing tomorrow. I'll get some sleep in there. My goodness. Yeah. Um, it's hard to sleep when everything is so exciting. Yeah. There's forward movement. And what, coming back to what you said about this is a good time to be doing this work. Uh, it's a historical time to be doing this work. I mean, it, it's hard to sleep. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine, yeah. and um, and you know, it's a real, it's a it's a really good time to to be focusing on animal advocacy. You know, particularly with the vegan movement, it's something that's you know, it's I've said before in this podcast, there's not a week that goes past without yet another article or scientific discovery about you know the cause of climate change and 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 it being bad for your health it being bad for the animals and mm-hmm. it's um you know i think i mean how long for example you've been vegan a while haven't you 16 years. 16 years so probably 16 years ago i mean you may have had one choice of soy milk if you're like if you were lucky mm-hmm. you know and now it's like oat almond hemp it's yeah. it's you know it's athletes um being being vegan you know influencers on, on instagram it's it's such a good time right there's, now yeah just so many reasons there's every reason really to to be on side with the animals to be on side with the environment and our health uh you know not to get all campaigny about this but I mean, coming back to, I guess, my role in the world and, and stuff, and it's it just feels good to be here and to um, be embracing the community that wants to be involved and is taking a step up and caring about all these things, which are just so crucially important. It does feel good, yeah. And I think, you know, you mentioned not to be all campaigny. It's such a tough, you know, <laughs> tightrope to walk when you... You know, you are uh, an activist, you're a photographer, you're telling these stories, you're a vegan, you know, I mean, you are rife example for the right wing press of just being a self-righteous, you know, mm-hmm. hippie and, you know, they'll probably find pick holes in your veganism or whatever. But when, you know, it's touched on this before, we're dealing in a world of photography and conservation. And there are so few of us who are doing this work that are actually vegan. Um, and again, I'm you know sensitive about saying it because there were people listening to this, and you know you don't want to kind of discourage them, but you kind of you need to plant seeds in a really gentle way. Planting seeds is what we do, mm. yeah. And uh, I you know have been pushy in my day, and I it's hard not to approach others with the sense of urgency that I feel and that activists feel you know that's that's why we're out there with Extinction Rebellion and all the things that we do uh, the sense of urgency and with the knowledge that we're equipped with I mean you want to get out there and yell about it but uh, there are all sorts of great ways to approach people and ideas and um, not only people but ways to approach law and science in a way that um, will affect change. Yeah. I think I just went on a ramble there. But. <laughs> <laughs> it's totally fine. And I think it's, it's also um, connected to what we were talking about earlier about just being or doing one thing in the machine that's sort of, you know, moving forward in mm-hmm. terms of climate 
well, we call it climate breakdown now, really. We're trying to influence that change of not calling it climate change because that's what's happening is a climate breakdown. Um, and, you know, not getting up on your soapbox and wagging your finger, but just doing it in a leading by example way, yeah. a planting seeds way. Uh -huh. um, and, and sharing knowledge, not telling people how to think and feel, but just sharing information. And one of the things that I love doing in my job is the humane education. Uh, we almost has humane education programs, so I'm in schools. Oh. Um, uh, I used to do it a lot, a little bit less this year. But, you know, those, those eight-year-olds and those 10-year-olds, when you share information with them about animal, how animals are treated in the world, um, kids don't want secrets kept from them. Wow, that's know? a really kind of you know touchy subject as well, isn't it? Going into schools and how do you yeah. kind of handle that one and your image selection and yeah, I mean all the talks are age appropriate, of sure. course. Um, but I'm able to talk about all sorts of things like, you know, where did the fur trim on your coat come from? Like, let's talk about that. And I mean, these are facts. Um, yeah. Yeah, and let kids think for themselves. And in Canada, the dairy industry goes into schools to talk about, uh, you know, to promote dairy. And there was one time a few years ago where I came in about a week later. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And I was like, okay. <laughs> who, who, who organized that booking schedule? This amazing teacher named <laughs> Yasmin. And uh, she had me speaking to her grade fives. And, and I was able to say, okay, guys, like, you know, I hear, I hear you had someone come in and talk about milk. So where does milk come from? And how... How long can a cow live? And they were like, four to six years. I'm like, really? <laughs> a cow can live four to six years? <laughs> and they're just given all this information. I was like, well, actually, I've met a cow who lived 32 years because she wasn't, you know, she wasn't killed when she started producing less milk. And they're like, what? Mm -hmm. You know, letting people in on information and and secrets. That's the way I, I, I see it. And yeah. Like, wow. You know, we want to know the truth. Kids want to know the truth. People want to know the truth. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, until they get older and then it compromises their like yeah, you know, their steak habit <laughs> it's a little more complicated totally totally and you know and that's that's something that you do have to be that's when the gentle approach yeah. you know is important because someone who's been eating a certain way you know their whole lives you know you can't expect them just to switch like, oh. immediately and that's not the point I, I just expect people to think and to do their best I mean when I found out the reason I went veg is because my mom moved out to the countryside and she had a bunch of chickens who walked around the yard with the dogs and the cat. And just like the dogs wanted to be inside and socializing and sleeping on the couch, the chickens wanted that as well. I was like, oh my God, chicken is my favorite food. <laughs> but now I can't eat them like they're, I can't eat them. They're so smart and they're so lovely and complex. I was like, oh no. But I had the opportunity to learn and I allowed it to soak in and oh yeah but the point is is that once I realized I couldn't eat chickens anymore because they were smart animals I really didn't want to give it up because it's so tasty so I, I gave myself like a six month like okay January 1st you know yeah, yeah. January 1st you have to stop eating chickens <laughs> we just we just see it as a hardship and we see it as a, a giving up of the things that we are just so used to having but it's not that see once I stopped eating animals, I felt more aligned with myself, spiritually, intellectually, emotionally. I was like, oh, this is a gift I've given myself. This is not a hardship. And it's a gain. That's it's a the gain. other thing. It's a gain for this. me. Yeah, it's not even giving up. It's actually a gain. Mm -hmm. And you know, something I say all the time is that also diet-wise, not only is it healthy, but the variety of food you eat is just so much greater because mm -hmm. you're not just going down your traditional, oh, I'll just have meat and two veg again. Mm -hmm. And 
even though it's so much better these days to be a vegan, you still have to work a little bit harder to find those places, to search out those ingredients. And that's fun as it's well. Worth it. that, yeah, it's worth it. Yeah, it's a bit of a hunt. Yeah, it's not a deprivation. We just think that it will be. Yeah. yeah. And it's awful as well. You know, you mentioned that you, know, you discovered that these animals were smart because, again, the default is that they're stupid. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, pigs are, well, we know pigs are very intelligent. We look at, you know, animals like sheep. Our sheep are stupid. And I've, this is prevalent right now because I'm reading this amazing book called Are We Smart Enough to Know How Smart Animals Are? Friends to all. Have you read it? No, I'm going to. You're it's going on my to. list. It's awesome. Yeah, I'm halfway through. And um, he, uh, I've just read this chapter about uh, facial recognition. And a lot of his work was around chim- chimps. And exactly, sheep mm-hmm. have this incredible ability. And I say incredible ability, it's unsurprising. You know, they're sentient animals and they know one another from recognizing their faces and again it's this default of like you know you see sheep in the field being herded or whatever and they all look the same they're all the same size when you get up close of course they're not they are individuals who have you know feelings like we all do and I've also really experienced that um, in the last two and a half years photographing these foxes and watching these families grow up and you see how different it, I mean, I can go into the allotment where I photograph and there's nine foxes there right now. I can tell them apart immediately. And that starts getting you thinking about why is our attitude, our default attitude, you know, putting these animals down mm-hmm. on a lower rung of the ladder. That's our default. That is our default. I can't add to that. <laughs> uh, DeWall is a behavioral scientist, mm-hmm. right? Um, I, I do want to just tell this little anecdote Definitely. Uh, about um, I've met many chimpanzees in my life and two of them had been rescued from behavioral research. And so they had adequate, quote unquote, lives at a, at a research facility and then they were sent to a sanctuary. But these are chimpanzees who can sign. Wow. And so we are so used to gazing at animals and they gaze at us and there's very little communication we know there's someone in there. We know there's someone complex and interesting and quirky, but like we don't we don't know what they're thinking. And I met these chimpanzees who could sign to us. And so as we stared at each other blankly, the chimpanzee pointed to my friend's coffee and asked if it was coffee with the word coffee. We had a translator. Um, That's unbelievable. And then he asked, "Is there milk in the coffee?" And then he asked if he could have the coffee, but with milk. Okay, so that's how much. That's how complex, I mean, that's not even like the tip of the iceberg, right? But you don't know what they're thinking. And then he started pointing to my friend's face over and over and gesturing uh, the word uh, pain. And he was asking in a question, like, are you in pain? Are you in pain? Pointing at his face. And we figured out that it's because my friend has these really stretched earlobes with um, the the earrings in them. And that was unusual to the chimpanzee. And when we get these insights and we shouldn't need these insights like we shouldn't need them to communicate in our language to us to understand that there's someone complex in there but we do get these opportunities to to see that and it should be the default it should be the default that there's someone complex there who deserves respect and autonomy and that is not the default and then to experience the uh the questions the queries that these chimpanzees had for us wow i mean i've had many animal experiences with animals in my life and that was one of them that sort of solidified everything for me there's there's so much going on there and i need to do everything that i can do in this one precious life that i have to uh you know help 
help them have a voice and help them have visibility and some more autonomy in the world. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I love, I just absolutely love hearing those stories and reading this book. You just get like, there's such a buzz off of it. And also, I mean, there is, you know, I agree that the default shouldn't be that they are stupid or that they are lower. And and, and it, it's not as simple as that, of course. It comes from also just having, not having the knowledge. And, you know, one of the things he talks quite early on in, in, in the book is basically bad science and bad testing on animals. So, for example, even putting an order uh, amongst the ape community about which ape was the most intelligent. So they would do these tests with gibbons um, that are, you know, tree-dwelling animals um, picking sticks up off the floor, which is something that they couldn't really do because they spend all their lives in the canopy. The apes could do it. Oh, uh, sorry, the chimpanzees could do it, so the chimpanzees are more intelligent. Oh. You know, that, that kind of thing is sort of a lot of the early part of the book is debunking, you know, old science and... I think debunking is a harsh word, but just questioning, you know, that and saying how oh, this is this, you know, you can't judge an animal in this way if you're doing bad tests. Oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah, we're so limited and we don't realize it. So it, that's a fantastic book. It, it is. sounds like people should be reading yeah, it. Yeah, and, and very accessible. Um, you know, text is it's fabulous. I've got a couple more questions. Okay. And then we can free you up. Um, and this idea that I've, that's come up quite a bit around, you know, remaining hopeful in, uh, in a time where, you know, particularly in animal agriculture, you read a lot that there, you know, big ag farms are going up, you know, still at an alarming mm -hmm. rate, even though there mm -hmm. is this shift, um, you know, towards greater awareness, much greater awareness around the sentience, around our health, around the environment. Um, how do you remain hopeful with, with, with the work that you do? Uh, it's a choice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and it's not blind optimism. I'm very aware of the facts and the realities. And um, it's interesting that while veganism is on the rise, so is animal use. Mm -hmm. uh, so is animal eating. It depends on the economy, the country, um, progress, quote unquote. Yeah. Um, so I remain realistic, but I also have faith in uh, human intelligence and our ability to continue to evolve in a compassionate way. And I mean, all I can do is do my best. Uh, coming back to that conversation is like, well, you know, I can only do so much, but I'll do my best to further that, um, to further our abilities to be better stewards. Yeah. And um, I could have an ex existential crisis every day about all of this, but I choose not to. I choose to put one foot in front of the other and uh, to nurture people and to nurture change and to raise awareness. Yeah, I think that's a great answer. And I'm going to take that <laughs> advice on board as well. <laughs> yeah, it is. I think that's something I'm, I'm, I'm learning more and more when you kind of, you know, roll your eyes in your head about another kind of totalitarian president being elected or this uh, um, opening up national parks or drilling and you know reading all these stories it's a bit like oh so yeah you have to kind of carry on keep moving mm -hmm. forward keep doing what you believe in um, and take a few people along the ride with you yeah, as well yeah take and, people along yes 
Um, so what's next for you? We've got the, the Wildlife Photographer of the Year Awards um, on, on Tuesday, which is exciting. Um, and then you're back home. Um, do you know where you'll be going next? Well, with the We Animals Media team, we want to continue to uh, broaden our reach by examining the overlap of animal oppression and other oppressions and other issues, animal advocacy and animal issues don't exist in a bubble and they never did and they they shouldn't. I mean, they overlap with uh, environmental issues and human rights issues. So let's bring all those things together. Uh, We have a film coming out about um, uh, Palestine and animal advocates within Palestine, which is a really niche thing. And it's a beautiful title. It's um, called Nations of Their Own. which is the double entendre there with uh, Henry Beston's quote and, you know, nations of their own being the people and the non-human animals. Um, And When when can we expect that? When will that be released? um, I'd say end of 2020. Okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah, broadening our reach is is what's next for me. And, um, yeah, it's... I mean, my focus has always been animals, but it's just more complex than that. So sure. let's look at the complexity. Yeah. Let's bring more people in yeah. and I guess similar solve to, more problems. Yeah, and similar to the wildlife issue is that you, 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 you can't conserve animals without considering people yeah. that are living on the edge of national parks, for example, and yeah. use it for sustenance, etc. Yeah, they're too intertwined. They're absolutely intertwined. Uh, one of our women in the Unbound Project is a, vet, a gorilla vet, and she knew that if she wanted to protect the uh, gorillas in windy, impenetrable forest in Uganda, she had to um, help um, alleviate communicable diseases in the surrounding communities. So she brought medical you know, health care to surrounding communities, and so that helps the people, that helps the animals, and everyone's happy. So, That's amazing. So we need to be dynamic and... And thoughtful in our in our actions and our strategies. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool, um, Joe. It's been so nice talking to you and spending time with you. Um, I get such a buzz out of it. It's oh, a it's a real <laughs> inspiration. And we will, I guess, the best place for people to look you up. Um, your website, joannemacarthur.com. Is that right? Uh, or I would even go to weanimalsmedia.org. Weanimalsmedia.org. We we'll put all the yeah. links up. Um, and we will get this out to as far as wide an audience as possible. Thank you. Um, and I encourage everyone to just use the images and share them. That's what they're there for. That's why I shoot them. Yes. Great. Yeah, that's awesome. So um, we'll do it again and we'll have a look at what happens in the, oh. that three to five year strategy of, <laughs> of we animals of where you're at. I'm sure it's going to be a great success and I'm, I'm really looking forward to following the journey that's daunting but uh i will do my best (laughs) great and after a hard day's work you've earned a a nice glass of wine and a lasagna so we'll go and enjoy that let's do it thanks so much okay thank you what a great way to end the year joe has left me feeling energized for 2020 and i want to take this opportunity to thank all my guests who've given up their very precious time to be on the podcast and also you the listener I've received so many kind comments over the past year and I'm truly grateful and it also helps to keep me motivated to continue interviewing inspiring people in the natural history arena. 
and I've already got some great guest lines up for 2020. So as ever, stay tuned, keep in touch, wishing you all a very happy new year, and I look forward to connecting again in 2020. Goodbye. Thank you.